Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Uh, quick note before we actually start the show, I've started putting um, these episodes up on YouTube. It's a bit of an experiment for now. It's lovely that some of you are actually watching watching these. Uh, to find them up on YouTube, type in Royfield or you can type in Mid-Atlantic Show and you should then bump into them. Let me know what you think of them being up there on YouTube and um, we will continue the experiment. Uh, also, it's a great way to to see everyone's living room. So if you want to see the flowers that Emma Burnell's got behind her or uh, the, um, the, the what's it, what one you got behind you there, Mike? This? Yeah. What's that? The constellation uh, above Spain on the day that I posted my wife. No. Oh. oh. Well, there you go, folks. You, you can't beat Mike that. Wins. Yeah, you can't beat that, Mister Romantic, Mister Lover, Lover Man, Mike Holden. If you want to see the things that he's got in his his room, go watch us on YouTube. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in his beloved grey dank. Bay Area. Today we're joined by Steve O'Neill, the ex-deputy head of policy for the Liberal Democrats in London. Political pundit Mike Holden in. Where are you again, Mike? It's Talk Burnley, right? Oh, it's Burnley. Burnley, thank you. Burnley. I'm going to get a sign at the bank. <laughs> They're not doing too well this year, are they? Excuse me, we we beat Liverpool back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also have writer and journo Emma Burnell, who's in Walthamstow in London. We are joined by first-time pundit on this show anyway, actor Terry Malloy in East Anglia. And uh, bringing up the rear, we have Mick Wright, the founder and editor of The Conquest of the Useless, the media criticism newsletter, who is in Norwich. Say hello, folks. Hiya. Hi, Hi Mick. Rums, that was a lackluster. You know what? Probably <laughs> sums up the British mood at the moment. But oh, I'm in a ferociously to... bad mood. Mick, how will we tell the difference? You'll see. 
<laughs> Good. Right. Well, I hope, Mick, you'll be able to elucidate and uh, illuminate us as to the reason why your mood is even worse than normal. But first, I need to say this. In a week in which Gordon Brown has said the UK risks becoming a failed state with this union rife, the world shocked at our COVID numbers, and with the PM and his government all at sea, we ask, how worse can it get for us Brits? Today we learn that tragically, 100,000 people have now lost their lives to coronavirus. That's twice as many as died in the Blitz. It's the equivalent of the population of UK towns, such as Bath or Stevenage or Hastings. It's nothing more than a national tragedy, a terrible reminder of what we've lost as a country, an awful reminder that we have one of the worst death tolls in the world. Sir Keir Starmer has said that 100,000 COVID deaths in the UK is twice the number that we lost in the Blitz. As I said before, Gordon Brown has said the UK risks becoming a failed state. How did we get here? And is it all fair to blame our current woes at the hands of this government? Would we have fared any better under another leader? Uh, I'm going to start with you, Emma Burnell. Is this all Boris Johnson and incompetence, or is this a government beleaguered by a once-in-a-century pandemic? Uh, it's a bit of both and a bit of something else as well. Um, the government have been incredibly incompetent, and I really wish they hadn't been. Um, I was trying to cheer them on in the beginning, trying to um, wish them well, because ultimately they're the government of my country and I want things to go well. You can't simply lay this at the current Prime Minister's feet because actually an awful lot of the seeds were sown between 2010 and 2017. The David Cameron and the Tory government and the coalition government did an awful lot to strip out the parts of the public sector where we needed better strengths, we needed better flexibility and better ability to stretch our resources. And instead of stretching our resources, they just stretched them to the limit and broke them. Um, and they broke them slowly and carefully so we didn't notice until it turned out that they were broken when we came to need them more than ever. And anyone who enabled them is a lot of the problem. All right, uh, Steve O'Neill, I'm, I'm going to come to you. In a lot of people's eyes, the UK's island status should have really helped us in, in a pandemic. Taiwan has had negligible amounts of cases of COVID. Ditto New Zealand and, and Australia, where they do have a really hard and fast lockdown. Their numbers are minuscule, so much so that we have more deaths in one day than they've had during the last year in Australia. Emma's talked about the historical reasons. Maybe there was a weakening of uh, the bureaucratic state on the ground, you know, public services, etc. What's your take on it? Because ultimately, that doesn't really deal with, with the economy. We're now looking at a situation whereby the UK is going to have the worst uh, recession figures of the uh, G7 countries. Um, Steve, tell us why. Well, the reason why is we have had the worst of both worlds, haven't we? We've ended up locking down late too often. I think maybe at least two of the lockdowns came too late, and so they've been longer and harsher. The actual government packages of economic support, plenty to say about why it's good or bad, but a lot of it has been quite generous, and you can sympathise how they've had to roll out quicker. So on the, on the economic side, it's not been so bad. Yeah, what Emma says is right. The NHS was understaffed. We've had problems with staffing nurses in particular. 
for yeah, ever since the sort of austerity days and doctors, yeah, a lot of that's not going to have helped. Some of it's been bad luck. A lot of it's been bad decision making. I think that's most of the story. Terry, I'm going to come over to you. Where exactly are you in East Anglia, Terry? Just outside Norwich. So you can, you can uh, shout out your window and uh, say hello to Mick. He's in Norwich also. Hi, uh, Mick. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, please explain to me. I'm sat over here in, I was going to say, warm, sunny California. It's not warm and sunny at the moment. However, with all of this turmoil, um, Boris Johnson still has a 40% approval rating. Why is Tories in the opinion polls, why are they doing so well considering that so many seem to disapprove of his role in actually being our Prime Minister? I really think a lot of this comes down to education and how um, the education system has been degraded over the years um, to the point that people are coming out through the education system with no concept of being able to actually engage with debate or engaged with research to find out what is true and what is what is misinformation. They are masters at misinformation. The Tory party always have been. And uh, they have put that to their, you know, their good use in blaming everything else. Plus we have a very right-wing press, of course, who are always gonna shout the odds. But the, the degrading of the NHS over the years, really, I mean, I'll go back even further than Emma to, to Tony Blair and, and bringing in the PPI so that uh, so many hospitals were taken over by private companies and being paid vast amounts of money to produce these hospitals, which has always been the tenure of the NHS, was the beginning of that reduction of, of the ability of the NHS to stand its own ground in the face of private enterprise. Terry, hold that thought because I want to try and get everybody in today. Mick Wright, um, you have a stepdaughter who is in school at the moment and you uh, you monitor the press, so to speak. So could you speak to what Terry says and also for our non-British uh, listeners? You're on the ground. Speak to us about the press and also speak to us about the stresses that COVID has actually put on the educational system. Yeah, well, the other thing I say is I'm school governor and in a, in a city London primary. So I studied education at university. The thing is, I, I think Terry's right. And I think Emma was right. But I'd like to go back even further and say uh, Labour became increasingly right wing during its time in government, uh, domestically as much as in foreign policy. Tony Blair's greatest domestic crime is where he decided to get in bed with Murdoch. He decided to let Murdoch continue to be a defining power in the United Kingdom. Now, the, the truth is, in recent years, the sun has become less powerful in British politics. It doesn't move the needle as much as it once did. But the British media is still a very right-wing block of people. And the problem I have, and I, and I push this a lot, but there are certain things that cannot be questioned in the British media debate, from the monarchy through to landlordism, various other things. They're just, there are these things that are just, you know, taken as read. So today I was listening to PM, um, you know, a radio show on BBC Radio 4, presented by Evan Davis. And Evan Davis says, well, you know, is it something we've done wrong or is this really, you know, would this have happened anyway because of the virus? And you kind of think to yourself, you're an intelligent journalist, you should be, and yet you're saying, well, maybe it's not the government's fault. Maybe it was always going to be like this. The Conservatives don't believe in state capacity. They didn't put 
you know, you have someone like Jeremy Hunt, uh, former health secretary now saying, oh, well, I would have done this, that and the other differently. But he was in government and caused the NHS to have no headroom. The The people who work in the NHS work incredibly hard and are doing the best they can, but they could not deal with this as well as they should have been able to because there was no headroom. There was no excess capacity. We've reached a point now where you're not allowed to make changes in the state until there's a crisis. That is madness. We are running a state. We are already a failed state. Gordon Brown, sorry, but it's already happened. All right, Mick, uh, very well said. Mike, I want to come to you. Emma, you're going to be next. Britain is an overly centralised state. One of the things which Gordon Brown kind of hinted at with his statement saying that we're a failed state is our disunion. Has COVID really shown us exactly how centralised Britain is, specifically England, and how has that kind of played out in the regions? Obviously, Burnley's up in the northwest. How have you viewed government policy from being somewhere, what, 200 miles outside of London? We, we do um, see, we've seen it all, all over the place lately, that um, uh, the union is beginning to break up. And OK, that may be uh, as much to do with Brexit as it is to do with the, the COVID, but you've been able to see how different countries, uh, different Parts of the Union, Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland and Wales, have handled things differently. Parts of Manchester have been locked down since about March or April in various degrees. And we're still where we are. And where we, the reason we are where we are is because if London is suffering, then the lockdown starts to spread countrywide. If London's not suffering quite so badly, Boris Johnson tells us we can all go outside and celebrate the Day. Um, so... The, the, the London-centred view of um, of the, the pandemic and, and, and the treatment of it uh, has, has had a huge impact. And the Northwest, uh, it's been on the news a, a lot today, uh, the Northwest is, is one of the worst affected areas. Um, and the hospitals are overwhelmed. I must say, I mean, uh, I agree with what uh, the other guys have been saying, that um, the press have been absolutely woeful in, in tackling this. Um, there's a bit of a problem now uh, in that uh, the... Um, Prime Minister's uh, questions, uh, uh, health questions, are run like this. So he can stick us on mute anytime he wants. So um, the consequence of that is that the um, journalists are getting in three-part questions. Question for Boris Johnson, question for Chris Whitty, question for whoever's sat on the other side. And that allows uh, the Prime Minister to have the um, ability to avoid the question. I'm, I'm going to hold you there, Mike, because there's, there's a lot, lot of us on this show. Emma, you had your hand up. You, you wanted to jump in. I believe you wanted to... Uh, yeah, it was on the Mick. back of something Mick was saying. We are increasingly bringing the private sector in to deliver services, and, and that's been really exposed during this crisis. But it's not just that. I think originally there were sort of these ideological ideas. I didn't agree with them, but they were a set of ideologies around competition. Very specifically, the competition would drive um, things to work better for people to compete over how to improve things. I never thought it would work. And it turns out I was right, because what's actually happened is there's not that much competition at all. There's a few really big companies who gobbled up all of the smaller innovative ones and just have the capacity to outbid everybody else and do the lowest common denominator work because they're all that's left. 
You've got a combination of that and cronyism. And actually, there's no ideology left anymore. It's literally just these are the companies. This is who we give our money to. And when we leave our government jobs, we'll walk straight through the revolving door into a directorship of one of them. Steve, is it graft at the moment or do we just have a government hell-bent on just reacting to every crisis thrown at them two weeks late? Uh, It's a government um, signified by all the words U-turn, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it very much is. Although um, since the Conservatives have been in power, there have been a lot of U-turns even before the Boris Johnson time. I think in general, though, we're getting a bit off track. We're talking about neoliberalism. I know that's what I've used, not Emma's word, mixed word. but And we're sort of trying to make it all about these ideological debates. Actually, the, the, the current government isn't very neoliberal or free market at all. It's been very interventionist even before, really. The new music was even before the pandemic they were going that way. Really, I think what Gordon Brown's talking about is a disconnect between different communities and trust, which is partly to do with the government's cat hand handling of the pandemic, but partly to lots of long-term cultural factors. And the reason that Scotland looks increasingly like it could go independent, I'm not as certain as everyone else seems to be that it will be. It isn't just to do with free markets and things, it's to do with all these other factors. So um, I think we're getting a bit lost in the, in the, converse, in the conversation here. From an American perspective, this is not a neoliberal government. This is a statist government who are being very interventionist, purely from an American perspective. You could talk about the Germans and the Italians and where they see us on the political needle. But over on this side of the Atlantic, this is a government which is rolling up its sleeves and getting in the way of free markets. Terry, before I come on to you, Mick, uh, Terry, Boris Johnson is kind of being characterised as being uh, somewhat of of a bumbler in in this uh, crisis. But how can we all regain confidence in our government? Because we do need it if they are going to, let's say, in February, the end of February, start to roll back COVID restrictions. Will we be able to trust them? How can they regain our confidence? I don't think they can. I don't think we really can. I mean, Boris Johnson is not a leader. He is a bumbler. He is a bumbler. He, he lives on, in the same way as Trump did, um, affirmation of his jolly self. And he's always, you know, become the, the, the kind of the, the bumbling clown, which everyone loves. And that would have worked fine had it not been for pandemic. And the pandemic has absolutely ripped apart any concept that he actually has, you know, a, a grasp of things. He wants good news all the time. So, so endlessly we will be having you know, released back into normality, only to be pulled back again. If he'd had the same sort of chutzpah as, you know, the Prime Minister of New Zealand right at the beginning, closed everything down, said, that's it, nobody in, nobody out, we close this down, we find a way of paying for the people who are suffering at this end, we would have not had the degree of (sighs) angst that the, the British people have had to go through. That is down to Johnson and and the dwarf intellectuals that he has in his cabinet who are just basically playing silly games and they are reacting, not proacting. We don't have a proactive government. We have one that reacts to problems. He would have have probably, everyone would be saying, oh yeah, he's done it, you know, but there would still be questions. And in a sense, he's missing the, the Brexit problems because it's been overwhelmed by pandemic. But... He's a, he's a waste of space. Mick, you, you're going to jump in, sir. 
I, I avoid getting into I, like Steve saying we're in the weeds with neoliberalism. And, well, a I avoid using the term neo, neoliberalism because at this point, frankly, I don't give a sh- what the American perspective is, right? Because that's a country with a broken political system too. My problem is with this saying it, it, you cannot be statist if you don't have a state to rely on, right? So this government's not statist because there's no state power. That's, it's not really using state power because you look at it, there's an illusion of state power in the sense, yeah, you can, can close things and, and, and do this, that and the other, but actually their reliance on the private sector is huge. Their reliance on their donors is huge. If you look at Boris, Right, uh, Boris Johnson. He doesn't really have an ideology as such, but his government is full of people with ideology, full of mad free marketeers like Nadim Zahawi, who's now the vaccine czar. The issue with Boris is what he does is, in place of having policies himself, he looks to think tanks which are powered by real ideologues with real dark money behind them, and that's where the government policies come from. And he looks to people like Priti Patel, who is an ideologue, who's a who's a, a Thatcher-esque figure. She she knows what she believes in, which is the return of the death penalty, which is uh, cracking down on immigration, and which is basically saying the poor kind of deserve to be poor. I, I believe this is an authoritarian government, but without the state power to be as authoritarian as they would be if they had the state power. And instead, they have to outsource that to these um, incompetent companies, which, as Emma said, have become so large and unwieldy and, and also who can cheat the procurement system. It's four or five massive conglomerates all of which will give jobs to these corrupt figures. And we should always look and say, look to see how what Boris Johnson is paid for speeches after this, because that's payments on account for what he's done now. I think it's a, a government run by cronyism, as the Tory party has been done uh, historically. Considering I'm sat in a country where um, the head of the executive tried to formulate some level of a coup, I don't know if I can go along and say the UK government is authoritarian. Crony, yes. Authoritarian, I don't know if I can quite go along with that. No, but what I I didn't say it's authoritarian. I say it would like to be if 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 it hadn't even, if it hadn't wiped out all the possible state power. That's what I said. You, you, you've got to remember what I actually okay, said. Okay, okay. I, I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. And Mike Holden, you wanted to jump in. Boris Johnson wants to be the good news PM. He wants to be the guy giving out the good news. And he's uh, and this is, is partly why we are where we are, because uh, considering the pandemic, uh, we're coming towards Christmas. And what he's focused on in, is, is giving people Christmas Day. And that's his message. And he was standing on that lectern and telling people they could do it. And then you could see... Um, the, yeah, now have 100,000 deaths. Exactly. And, and you could see in, in a very similar way to the way that you saw it with Trump when he was talking about injecting himself with light or injecting other people with light, more correctly. Medical experts are holding their heads in their hands. And... Uh, okay. Mike, I'm, I'm going to hold you uh, hold you right there. Steve, oh. is it fair to say that Boris Johnson and his administration is one of uh, science deniers? I wouldn't say so. I just think that he doesn't move so fast. I think Mike is completely onto something. He wants to be the good news prime minister. Um, he always thinks that ah, if I keep my head down, things will be all right in the end. But this has come back to bite him on the bum, hasn't it? I think I think that that's right. And no, I don't think they're science deniers and they haven't given that impression really if you've listened to them. I know lots don't like them very much and want to say that sometimes, but they haven't given that impression. They have lacked judgment. I, I know you remember Rory Stewart, the um, ex-conservative MP, 
um, he, at the beginning of this whole thing, was saying that this is a judgment call. It's not about listening to the science. He was saying lockdown. And he was proved right, actually. Um, and what we had is a sort of leadership in power and kind of floundering around um, and unable to kind of take a judgment on based on the science he was getting, which was a very emerging picture in truth. We didn't know masks worked until months later. It was speculation at that time. We didn't really know the nature of the virus and what was going to work to suppress it or whether it was going to take off until, you know, February, March last year. What we need was a government who's going to take the kind of proactive judgments to deal with it. It looks like in New Zealand, in some of the other countries mentioned, they did that and maybe got a bit lucky, but it worked for them. That's what's failed, I think. And if you think about um, some of the past prime ministers we've had, I think if we had someone like a Tony Blair in office, for example, maybe he would have had the kind of judgment to do it. And it's not just about following the science. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of following the science, the Conservative government follows the science when it's convenient to their their uh, agenda. Um, if they were really following the science, we would have had lockdowns much earlier um, when the scientists actually said, you should be locking down now. But they, they carried on, they carried on until it was inevitable it would happen. And now we have it with the, with the COVID vaccine, you know, that everywhere else in the world is following the science that is predicted by the uh, the covid developers by pfizer saying you must have the second one within 3 weeks oh no 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 says the government we're going to have it after 12 weeks well that's following the science no it's not it's science for the, for them it's convenient i can understand their rationale for doing it but they don't follow the science and yet they they proclaim they are following the science. But as I say, it's only when it's convenient to what they want to do and to their agenda. Uh, Emma, uh, I'm going to come on to you in a, in a little bit there, Steve. Um, we have unemployment has hit a four-year high. It's now at 5%. Uh, Rishi Sunak is the most popular politician in the country. The vibe that I'm getting over here is that fundamentally the British people like people giving them good news. Is he popular because he gave us lots of goodies at the start of this? And when reality bites and we have uh, more than 5% of, of Brits unemployed, will his popularity remain? No. Um, he's popular because he gave us a lot of free money for a while. Um, but, and quite rightly, he, and, you know, the, the, the way that they um, did most of the furlough scheme and the support for unemployment was good and it, it was important. Uh, they missed a lot of self-employed people and they missed a lot of people who are really struggling. Um, and there are sectors that they just seem absolutely blind to. Um, the arts is a particular one um, that's close to my heart, obviously. Get my theatres open for sake. He doesn't want to be that guy. It's not in his belief system. He is a Thatcherite pure and true. Um, you know, if you read anything that he wrote before the pandemic about his approach to monetarism, um, to welfare, to all sorts of things, this isn't this isn't who he is and who he wants to be. And um, that's why he's fighting, kicking and screaming not to increase the time of the universal credit uplift, because he knows full well that the longer that goes on, the more it becomes normalised and the harder it will be for him to then take away £20 a week from everybody. So he wants to do these things like, oh, give him £500 on an off chance. Well, the reason they do that is so you don't get used to having it in your regular packet. Um, and it will work out cheaper for the government. But cheaper for the government is not 
is not good enough because actually the government can more than afford it. The people who can't afford it are the people who are having 20 quid. And 20 quid, when you're on that kind of uh, margin, is massive, massive difference. Uh, I'm just going to come back on to you, uh, Terry, because obviously you're an actor. So Emma said something uh, really quite pertinent about kind of self-employed people, freelancers, uh, and how they were treated but by the government. Speak to that, then I'm going to come back over on to you, Steve. Then it's going to be you, uh, Mike. Yeah, I mean, they came out with this um, uh, self-employed income support as a grant, which is very fine for people like myself who have got a record of of accounts over many years, and they can they can balance those accounts. But um, there are a whole range of people who've just fallen through the net, who are not supported. They're not supported by income support. They're not supported by benefits, and um, the help that's been given to the uh, the cultural and creative sector, which provi- provides far more GDP than, say, for instance, sport ever does in the in the course of a year, yet they're the ones who've been pushed right to the back, not allowed to open, not allowed to continue the work that they're doing. It's the creators who are being creative and trying to find ways of getting around this that in order to survive and in order to prove that they're still there. And now they've had the double whammy of being told that they can't any longer go and work in the EU. Thank God, I'm Irish. I can get my Irish passport. I can work in the EU. But there are so many English actors, musicians and creatives who are not going to be allowed to work in the EU and maintain the income that they should be allowed to maintain. Uh, thank you, Terry. Uh, Steve, you had, you had your hand up there. Uh, I, I did. And I was I'm going to come back on Terry's point about the science. I think he made a good one. But um, also the the point I was trying to make again was that like it's been evolving it's been changing following the science isn't really a thing it's a kind of it's a tagline it's not possible I also want to agree with what Emma said about Richie Sunak and I think that uh, while I said earlier the government has been quite interventionist it's quite possible they've become being kind of dragged a little bit kicking and screaming into doing that and we forget sometimes it's not all just a bunch of politicians in the cabinet room running the country you have got people like we've seen Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, the scientists the advisors uh, being very prominent, but there'll also be economic advisors, uh, civil servants, who I suspect possibly pushed Richie Sunak into decisive action that he's got credit for. We'll never know, but um, it's worth bearing that in mind, I think, when credit is doled out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know that everybody across the country uh, wants us to get schools open as fast as possible. And I can assure you that is the ambition of this government. But I also know, we all know, that with 37,000 people in hospital suffering from COVID and the infection rate still forbiddingly high, you, we all must be cautious. And uh, we all want only to open schools when we can be sure that this will not cause another huge surge in the disease. If we're to get schools open and keep them open, which is what we all want, then we need to be clear about certain things. We need to be sure that the vaccine rollout is continuing to be successful, as it is. And most important, we need to see the impact of our vaccines on those graphs of mortality. We need to see that they really are saving lives and preventing people from becoming seriously ill. The Tories are in revolt over the failure to guarantee school reopenings by Easter. Uh, Mick, I'm, I'm going to come to you because you are a school governor. How has Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, remained in office after this uh, yet another round of mistakes, missteps, uh, considering we had the A-levels and GCSE uh, debacle earlier on, and now we have our educational system in crisis. How is he still in a job, Mick? Uh I don't know, man. Look, look, he was he was a very bad windows, uh, very bad fireplace salesman. Right. So I'm not quite sure why he was ever oh, considered no, he to be. He was not a good fireplace salesman. He 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 <laughs> he had an affair with a subordinate. But anyway, um, he was a very bad fireplace salesman. Is he responsible for that one behind you? It's a beautiful fireplace. That's 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 a fireplace of this. Uh, the quality of the fireplace, not the quality of the salesman. No, exactly. I wouldn't buy anything from him, uh, whether it be a fireplace or an education system. No, but seriously, okay. Thing with Gavin Williamson is right. Gavin Williamson had to leave government previously because uh, it was it was felt that he had leaked confidential um, information from cabinet, right? But. Prior to his ministerial career there, he had been chief whip. And being chief whip is a, is a very useful thing. You learn a lot of stuff about your colleagues. So I, I think to a certain extent, um, he's still benefiting from the fact that he used to be chief whip and, uh, you know, house of cards cosplays around with uh, a big spider, Cronus, his spider. But also, look, incompetence in the, in, in the Boris Johnson administration is no... Um, no barrier. No barrier to continuing to keep your job. Pretty Patel uh, ran her own independent foreign policy and was fired from government. And not only was she brought back into government by Boris Johnson, she was given one of the great offices of state. Um, although I, I do slightly balk at calling the Home Office one of the great offices of state because it's the most racist ministry in the United Kingdom uh, by far and continues to be and is an appalling um, organisation pretty much top to bottom. But with Gavin Williamson, look, the, the trouble with the, with the Department for Education is also suffering from the Michael Gove years where they, they, they decided that teachers don't know anything, that um, local 
uh, schools don't know anything, that you can bring in a load of private sector stuff, that you can just invent schools like free schools can just do what they like, where, where local authorities are, are pretty much cut off at the legs. Again, it's to do with the breaking down of state capacity and the ruining of the system so that the brilliant people that work in it do not have the means, the resources or the time to do things that they know should happen. That's why. And why has Gavin Williamson not been fired? Because this is a government of incompetence. Resources and time. Uh, Mike, just remind me, do you have a daughter of a child of school age? I do, yeah. You do. All right, brilliant. Let let, let me cue this up then. I I was utterly shocked. A good friend of mine, she's a head of a school in South London, and she told me that every day she has at least two or three uh, parents crying and screaming at her down the phone for her to allow their child to come into school. Obviously, key workers, their children have always been able to be schooled during this period. So she says, I have teachers doing remote learning uh, to to pupils. I Myself and the other deputy heads are then actually taking classes of, of children. We are utterly, utterly at the end of our capacity. So what Mick said completely chimes with me. I had no idea that um, in relative terms, a relatively well-funded school in a relatively affluent bit bit of London would be having this level of stress, organisational stress. Um, Speak to you being a parent of a child. Um, Are they being homeschooled? Are they going into school? How's it been for you? Daisy's mother, Kerry, is a support worker, so she is a reserved occupation. So, uh, and because uh, the work that I do, the day job, it involves allowing people to work from home myself, we're both uh, counted as uh, reserved occupations. So, Daisy has been in school, but there are only at most six in her year in school. Uh, and the teachers, uh, I, I get very frustrated with this because um, if you listen to the likes of LBC in the morning, Homeschooling is presented as a holiday for the kids. And in no way, anywhere, is it a holiday for the kids, is it a holiday for the parents, or is it a holiday for the teachers? Teachers are working twice as hard, and I know that from personal experience, because uh, they're running in-class in uh, classes, and they're also running Zoom classes, they're running uh, homework for, uh, for the kids who can't make it in. Parents are, are stuck at home. I mean, this, I think, is, is a large part of the... Um, uh, some of the uh, Tory parties uh, push to have schools open. It's not to provide a better education for the kids. It's, it's to get the people back at work. It's to, it's to have the um, Uber drivers out there working. Um, so, uh, and, and that is a big push uh, for the children to be back at school. But, uh, believe you me, no one wants these children to be at home. Uh, and I speak to parents all the time. Uh, no one wants them to be at home. There are very few alternatives when people might die. Uh, Steve, come over to you. Obviously, you are uh, the the man who's politicon kind of in the middle. We we met in a podcast called called No Man's Land. You Lib Dems sit, see yourself somewhat as being uh, you know the the balance to the left and the right of, of British politics. Um, give us some kind of sense as to what um, the Liberal Democrat um, strategy would have been during the present pandemic. Give us a sense of what what a Liberal Democratic thrust would be for British society post the pandemic. How would it be different from this reactive, always be on the eight ball Tory government? Um, 
So it's hard to really know now because lots of the because the Lib Dems are so far away from government that to sort of say what what someone would do in say a coalition situation, it's not really a realistic um, question. I mean, I can think back to some pretty good, diligent uh, technocrat ministers who who were Lib Dem ministers, David Laws kind of people. I think would have done and it would have been good to have them in government as opposed to some of the Gavin Williamson type people now. <laughs> I see them making faces. Um, and David Laws, honestly, why isn't he just a Tory? Just stick the badge on, mate. <laughs> I don't think that's fair at all. But um, I mean, he's probably, you know, he's in the centre. He's not centre left, but I don't think he's a Tory. In terms of strategy now, I honestly, I don't really know. I think in a world we're in where you've got a Labour Party who are now looking centre left, looking credible, electable again, I don't think that's a, a good space to fill. I think it's really difficult for a Liberal Party to navigate the kind of the the culture war we have between the kind of hyper progressive so-called woke politics and the kind of nasty right-wing politics i i think you get drowned out so honestly um i think that i don't think the lib dem should employ me as a strategist but i don't know how i don't quite know how they navigate this world i think it's a really tough question terry do we need a good technocratic government after this a nice quiet one that is going to get on do their thing nothing flashy will that in effect, help heal the divide. Again, I can't help but view UK politics from the prism of American. We're not as partisan uh, in the UK. We have elements of it. There's no two ways about it. But there is a much broader middle consensus. But do we actually need some politicians who are going to be incredibly grey and dull that come in after this bunch? Uh, we need politicians who are incredibly intelligent, <coughs> grey and dull. But uh, taking from um, Gordon Brown's article, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in favour of having a devolution into uh, people and citizens' input into doing. At the moment, it's focused so much on Whitehall. And what they decide is what happens throughout the country. There has got to be much more interaction from uh, people around the country. I mean, I was on our local parish council for many years and it became apparent to me that we had absolutely no power whatsoever to have any say in what was happening in in county politics let alone national politics it was totally ignored and i think power needs to be devolved out i mean the whole question about uh, scotland and uh, independence is based on the fact that they are so removed from Westminster and they feel so isolated. Well, that's happening around the country. Unless we get people like all of us sitting around here having our say in what's happening, rather than the dogmatists, the, the Brexiteers who are stuck in one thing, but are able to discuss, are able to share opinions and listen to one another, not immediately blow people out of the water because it's not your dogma we're talking about, then... Until that happens, we're not going to get the cohesion that this nation needs to heal itself. And I think people in general, well, I hope, I don't know, I do certainly feel that is the only way forward. Personally, I would just blow the whole bloody lot out of the water, I feel. Thank you, Mr. Malloy. Emma Burnell, you've been waiting to uh, have your say. I, I just want to um, kind of pick up on what I think is a false dichotomy between um, ideology and technocracy. Um, one of the reasons I get very frustrated sometimes in the Labour Party is that I have quite strong left-wing beliefs, 
Um, and I see them being incompetently argued for or incompetently written up. Um, I suspect that people who share a free market position uh, with Rishi Sunak uh, are getting frustrated with the incompetence of this government. Um, but I don't think that we have to make competency boring and non-ideological. Um, I think actually the more that we make that dichotomy, the more we leave ideology and belief and the power of belief and the power of stories and passion to the people who don't have the ability to implement it. Um, so I really just want to be really conscious that those two are not the opposite of each other. Uh, and that you can be a very powerful and passionate ideological believer who can also make the trains run on time. Um, I'm sorry, that's a Mussolini thing, so I probably shouldn't use that as an example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I absolutely do. When you all agreed to be on this panel, I, I kind of realised everybody here was English and definitely being outside of the UK, Britain and England uh, are totally interchangeable terms. And it doesn't half upset the Scots, uh, the Northern Irish and, and the Welsh. It absolutely does. We're going to put our, our put our thinking caps on now. I'm going to come to you all. Just need like quick answers. We've we've talked about the dissolution maybe of the union and this maybe being the the final kind of death nail in it. <clears throat> what type of England will appear? Let's say Scotland does float off. Northern Ireland will have it eventually will become part of a united Ireland. Maybe we'll, England will just be left with Wales. But what type of England will we see in, let's say, 10 years' time? Just need quick answers, because this is blue sky thinking. I've just thrown this all at you. Um, I'm going to start with you in the very English town of Burnley, Mike Holden. Well, I, I can't see it being anything other than much smaller than it is now. Um uh, we've heard this week that uh, Boris Johnson's going to sort out the Scottish problem because he's going up there. Um, I don't know if he's ever seen Braveheart, but uh, I expect <laughs> he's going to get a fun time when he gets north of the border there. The argument that the government are putting, and I said this at the last podcast, was that um, it was a once-in-a-generation uh, thing for Scotland to have an independence uh, referendum. Uh, but one of the premises, one of the major premises they used was that the only way to, for Scotland to stay in, as part of Europe was to stay in the UK, and that yeah. turned out to be a lie. So, but let's I, talk about England, though, Mike. Well, England's England's going to fracture further because uh, once Scotland has uh, gained its independence, we in the north, if, if you go back a few hundred years, that border with Scotland was south of where I am now. The north of England and Scotland were were the the one territory. That inequality is going to get going to get worse as time goes on. Uh, Mike, sorry, you you are turning the clock back over a thousand years for the Kingdom of Northumbria, which went yeah. all the way from the Trent all the way to Edinburgh. But anyway, we, we need to be looking forward. Terry Malloy, the the Irish man with the English voice, who's in in Norwich, England in ten years' time. Uh, England will be England. It will no longer be Great Britain. I don't know why they still call it Great Britain because it isn't. It's Britain. Um, it will be a disunited kingdom. Um, I feel that, you know, and Mike was saying, uh, who's to say there's not going to be a Celtic block of Cornwall, Wales, you know, uh, re rejoining with Ireland and Scotland to produce that Celtic sway that runs all the way around to, to, um, to Brittany. Um, we are tribal and 
sadly, the little Englanders will eventually be reduced to a you know little pool around Guildford, I guess, um, and uh, that'll be it. And uh, we are afloat in the middle of the Atlantic. We've always been an island, Terry. We've always been an island and will continue to be one then. Well, not if we're just England, we won't. No, no, we won't. It will literally not be an island because there'll be a separate country to our north. All right, clever clogs. Uh, right. Okay. I, I, I'm. I'm going to come on to you, you Mick, and then I'm going to end. Uh, with, oh no, a, a, Emma, we haven't had you. Going to come to you, Mick. Then we're going to do you, Emma. Then we're going to end with Steve because Steve's going to hit us with some positivity. It's going to get us all pumped for uh, for 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 our future. Mick, right? Well, look, they're already they're already teeing up for a bonfire of workers' rights, which is which is something they said they wouldn't do. Uh, Bre- if we do Brexit, we'll probably have better workers' rights. We'll probably have a gold standard of workers' rights. So what does England end up looking like? England ends up looking like a, a low regulation, low tax, tax haven on the edge of Europe, uh, but without the the, 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 the the heat and pleasant weather that you find in, in many tax havens. Um, we, we will be a, a fractured federation of regional assemblies. And, and I think what people are saying about groups of the, those regions starting to say, actually, not going to be even relying on this Westminster Parliament anymore because that's broken, will happen. Um, we're a basket case now. God knows what will be when we have no union. Uh, you know, a united island will be a very strong and admirable democratic European nation sat just across from us doing all the things we could have been doing and doing them better. And uh, I mean, one of the things that Northern Ireland will need to have if it rejoins with Ireland, however, is 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 a health service, an actual, you know, publicly funded health service. But I could see that happening. I could see that happening. I could see a Sinn Féin government coming in in the Republican saying we're going to bring that in. That was a big surprise for me. I only learned in the last six months that uh, there wasn't universal health care as we'd understand it. It's a bit of a mishmash. I lived yeah. there for eight years and it's a bit of a mishmash. Another surprise for me. Emma Burnell, you've, you've got one minute to hit us with your view because we're running up to the hour because Steve is going to be positive. He's going to get out his flag of St. George and wave it all around his living room. So go on, Emma Burnell. It's quite possible that what everyone has said um you know once scotland goes and i think it is a once rather than an if um lots of other places are going to look at their own resources um there is huge resentment of london outside of london which i understand but londoners are becoming increasingly resentful of that resentment there is a huge issue of wealth transfer between london and elsewhere And if you end up with people rejecting London and London rejecting everybody else, that wealth transfer is going to be even harder to get out of that city um, and spread more evenly around the country. And that worries me, even as a Londoner. And, you know, there are the problem is is that I think most Londoners have a lot more in common with um, people in Burnley than we have with people in Chelsea but that's not the way that the debate is framed. Hmm. I, personally, I'll just interject one second there and say that, yeah, I agree with you what you're saying there. That, um, I do have uh, some friends down in London and there's a lot of liberalism down there. There's a lot of multiculturalism down there. There isn't, the, the little Englander isn't someone from central London. It's someone from somewhere else and I don't know where it is. Hmm. Let's blame Essex. Steve, Steve O'Neill, who, who are we blaming? 
and then pick us up because uh, we're all on the floor after this. Wasn't my intention, but that's where we've ended up. I'm not in the blame game, Royfield. I really wish I had my Union Jack to wave around, so I would wave it around, and I would. It would be a Union Jack deliberately. Um, Not a flag of St George. Not a flag of St George. I've got no problem with the flag of St George. Union flag when it's on land. (laughs) All right, clever clogs. I think I think the UK will scrape through and stay together. I think we're right now we are at ground zero. We've just had Brexit. We've had an awful pandemic. We've got a pretty terrible government. This is as bad as it's going to get. And it might get a little bit worse. We might get a bit more divided, but it's going to pick up after this. I think people in this country are much more tolerant, much kinder, more decent than we give them credit for. And I think we uh, ultimately will not Go, down, go the way of America. I think devolution will eventually happen. It's got to happen within England itself. The clamour's too real. We've seen mayors like Andy Byrne stand up sort of strong for their, 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 uh, their metro regions. I think we'll get more of that eventually. So we'll be a more devolved country eventually. I do think the UK will, will pull through. And I think what we need is a bit of leadership and someone who can actually talk to us about what we have in common and not what divides us. I do think that's doable. And I'm fingers crossed. I think it will happen um, in the next 10 years. So there you go, folks. Uh, you've had somewhat of a more positive spin from our Steve O'Neill. I'd like to thank our panel. We had Terry Malloy. We've had Mike Holden. We've had Emma Burnell. Uh, we've had Mick Wright alongside our Steve O'Neill, uh, giving you uh, t- testing the temperature of British for slash English waters as we uh, start uh, 2021 we will be coming back with um, another Brit panel in in a couple of weeks uh, you'll probably hear uh, or if you're watching us on YouTube see a lot of the same faces you can go on to midatlanticshow.com hit the little tab over there I believe it's on the left and leave us a voice note it was really great to get a voice note from Ottawa on on last week's show so if you've agreed with anything that Terry Malloy Mike Holden Emma Burnell Steve O'Neill, Mick Wright has said, or even disagree, probably more interesting if you disagree, why don't you hit uh, ultimateatlanticshow.com, hit that little voice tab. You've got a two-minute write of reply. We play those at the start of the show when we get them. So this has been our Brit panel um, telling us that mm, things are a little bit tricky uh, for the country of my birth. Uh, We're going to see you all again in approximately two weeks' time. Uh, for another blockbusting, rip-roaring episode of Mid-Atlantic will hopefully, hopefully, there'll be a few more smiles. Take care, look after yourself, be safe. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.